Good morning. Any uh, Narnia fans in the room? Narnia fans? Yeah. Well, I want to begin uh, our time in the Word this morning with a quote from Prince Caspian, the great lion Asland, speaking to Lucy, said this, Every year that you grow, you will find me bigger. There's a lot of truth to that, spiritually speaking. And uh, if I do my job well this morning then Jesus will look bigger to all of us by the time I'm done, and we will all have grown at least a little bit. So let me pray for us towards that end. Father, I pray that through your Spirit, you would give me the grace to make much of Jesus today, and that all of us would make much of Jesus Christ. Lord, may he loom large in our hearts and minds, and may we grow as a result. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You guys remember, I think it was about four months ago, my friend Jared Wilson was here and spoke to us about Jesus. You remember him? He's a a pastor in Vermont and an author and a blogger. And I'm actually recommending his newest book to all of you today. It's called Gospel Wakefulness. And it's really good. I'm reading it right now. And you can pick up a copy in our bookstore. But one of Jared's favorite words for Jesus is the word astonishing. Just say that word with me, astonishing. And I've been mulling that word over in my mind recently and thinking about it, and I actually looked it up on dictionary.com. You know, you don't actually go and find a book and look things up anymore, right? You look it up online. And uh, what it says is that astonish means to fill with sudden and overpowering surprise or wonder. Some synonyms include astound, bewilder, Blow one's mind, confound, daze, dumbfound, flabbergast, overwhelm, shock, stagger, startle, stun, stupefy, and take aback. Astonishment is what, we know what that is, it's what's experienced by someone who is accustomed to thinking a certain way about something, and then something happens that changes their whole way of thinking, there's upheaval in the mind. It's like what happens when you meet someone as an adult that you knew as a little kid. And you remember thinking back then, well, this kid is a handful, and they're going to be lucky just to make it to adulthood without killing themselves or somebody else. And then here they are as an adult, you know, a nuclear scientist or a bank president or something. And you're thinking, there is a God in heaven. I am totally astonished. Well, there is such a thing as spiritual astonishment. One man said, if the Jesus you think you know doesn't leave you at least a little bewildered at times, then you probably don't yet have a grasp of the real Jesus. And I concur with that writer. Jesus Christ of Nazareth was and is truly astonishing. And as we approach the celebration of his birthday here in just a couple of weeks, if there was one gift I could ask the Lord to give you, this Christmas season in honor of him, it would be a a clearer and sharper and more accurate mental image of Jesus Christ and what he's really like. And I think if you truly possess that gift, you would be utterly astonished and in awe of him. I've been trying to follow Christ for about 30 years now, and I'm still learning things about Jesus Christ. And, And as I do, I find myself often shaking my head and just saying, wow, he's more than I thought. He's more than I thought. And he's more than you thought. He is astonishing. 
The scriptures, the Bible, actually portrays Jesus Christ as quite an astonishing and bewildering person. Today we're going to gaze once again at Jesus Christ through his word, and I pray that we are overwhelmed by the unsettling, stunning magnificence of who Jesus Christ really is. You can take the study guide out of your worship folder and we can follow along together. First, I want us to to consider the astonishing promise related to his coming. Did you know that Jesus Christ, when he walked this earth, actually had the gall, the audacity to claim that all of the Bible was about him? Did you know that? One time he was talking to a group of people and in John 5.39 it's recorded that he said this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. The Old Testament scriptures point to me. That's what Jesus was saying. Later on, after he rose from the grave, you might recall that he joined in on a conversation between two guys who were walking on the road to Emmaus. Remember reading about that? And they are perplexed and confused about all the events that have happened to this individual, Jesus, in Jerusalem the last few weeks. And Jesus miraculously just kind of joins them, and they don't recognize him. And he listens to their conversation, and then he rebukes them for failing to see things more clearly. In Luke twenty four twenty five, it says, He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So here's Jesus Christ teaching biblical theology. Jesus of Nazareth teaching hermeneutics how to interpret the Old Testament. And he said, let me give you a lens through which to interpret the Old Testament. It's about me. All things point to me. Those men should have known better. that It's all in the scriptures. And so if you read the Old Testament and fail to see Jesus all throughout the story, then you've missed the main point of the story because it's all about him. That's what he said. From the beginning, the writings of Moses, the first books, a Messiah, Savior, prophet, king had been promised who would be God's ultimate answer for all that went wrong in the Garden of Eden. The one who was to come would be a revealer of God's glory, a restorer of God's fallen creation, a victor over the evil one, and a redeemer of humanity. That's Jesus Christ. And if you have eyes to see it, everywhere you look in the Old Testament narrative, you can find Jesus Christ. From Genesis, through Malachi, through clear promises, specific predictions and through pictures and types and foreshadowings, you can see that Jesus is the hero of the story. Let me say it this way. According to Jesus, according to the way he looked at the Old Testament, the story of David and Goliath, for example, is not primarily a story about a young shepherd boy taking down a huge giant. Now, that did happen, of course. That's a true story. But that's not what it's primarily about. It's mainly a story meant to, it's not mainly a story meant to inspire us to take down the giants in our lives. That's not the main reason the story was included in the Old Testament. The main reason the stories in the Bible is to point us to Jesus. The same is true for the story of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the ark, Daniel and the lions, Jonah and the whale. 
All the Old Testament stories. The ultimate point of all of those characters and all of their stories is to reveal something glorious about the ultimate hero who was to come, Jesus of Nazareth. I love the way Sinclair Ferguson describes this reality. He wrote this, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is given to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out for our acquittal and not our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who is not just offered up by his father, but actually sacrificed by his father. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice that we deserve so that we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betray him and sold him out and uses his new power to save us. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who, struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, even though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly palace, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate lamb, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. And you say, well, I never really thought about it that way. That's astonishing. And it truly is. But there's more astonishment ahead. Think for a moment about his astonishing entrance into our planet. Galatians 4.4, the Bible records... When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the time was right, in the plan of God, the promised one came, and he came in a truly astonishing manner. And I hope this Christmas season, as you explain the Christmas story to your young children, that you will impress upon them the wonder and the irony of Jesus' entrance into our planet. Truly astonishing, when you think about it. Although he was a king, he was born into a peasant family. He should have been born in a comfortable palace, don't you think? Fitting for royalty, and yet he was born in a smelly stable with the stench of animal waste wafting around. There should have been crowds present for for his appearance, but... His birth announcement was only given to a few lowly shepherds. There should have been parades and festivals and joyous fanfare surrounding the news of his birth. Instead, he came amidst the smell of scandal and a dark cloud of suspicion. A local girl claims to be pregnant apart from having relations with any man and her bewildered fiancé trying to understand and explain to their friends her apparent unfaithfulness. Strange bewildering, yet it was all part of a plan, wasn't it? A plan crafted in the mind of the Trinity 
in eternity past. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. As that plan unfolded in the life of that little infant and that little child, it became progressively clear that he was destined to succeed where the entire nation of Israel had failed, particularly in revealing the glory of the God who chose them. Think about the story. Remember that King Herod went ballistic when he heard that another king, another king had been born into his jurisdiction. Remember that? And he issued this executive order, right? In order to try to wipe out his rival, he issued an order that every child, every little boy, Jewish boy, two years of age and under, be slaughtered. Thankfully, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream, warning him of this and saying, take Mary and take the child and flee, go to Egypt. And that's where they lived for several years. But then after Herod died, it was safe to come back home. And that's what they did. And Matthew wrote this in Matthew 2.15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Quote, out of Egypt, I called my son. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, Matthew was quoting Hosea, an Old Testament prophet. And Hosea Hosea was referring to Israel when he wrote it. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Remember the deliverance out of Egypt? But Matthew applies it to Jesus. And what he's saying is that Jesus is the true and better Israel. Like Israel, Jesus was called home from Egypt. Like Israel, Jesus was the chosen one. But Jesus was the true and better Israel. He would succeed where Israel failed. As he grew up, the parallels became even more evident between Jesus and Israel. Jesus was baptized in a river, right? And remember, the children of Israel went through a river in their deliverance from Egypt. Then Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days, which harkens back to the 40 years that the children of Israel spent wandering around in the wilderness. Both Israel and Jesus were tempted while in the wilderness, Of course, Israel sinned while Jesus remained faithful. When Jesus embarked upon his ministry, he chose how many disciples? Twelve. Echoes of the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus was the true and better Israel. And where Israel, the nation, had failed in revealing the glory of God and being God's light of truth to the nations, Jesus succeeded, didn't he? Perfectly glorifying God in every way and then commissioning his disciples to go be the light of the world and preach the gospel to the nations, which Israel had failed to do. Jesus is the true and better Israel. And you say, wow, I didn't know that. That's astonishing. I know, but there's more. We're just barely scratching the surface of the astonishment of this man. Think about his words for a minute. Think about Jesus' teachings. You know, there was one prevailing response to the teachings of Jesus Christ when he was here throughout his life. Do you know what that response was? It was astonishment. Matthew 7, 28, when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Different. Wow, that's different. Haven't heard that before. Matthew 13, 54, coming to his hometown, local boy coming home, taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Wait a second. Does not compute. We know this kid. We watched him grow up here. 
What's this? They were astonished. Mark 1, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. This is different. This sounds different than what we're used to hearing. Mark eleven eighteen, and the chief priests and the scribes, the religious people, heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And you read through the Gospels and you see that the crowds were astonished by what he said. The chief priests and scribes were astounded. The hometown folks were amazed. His own disciples were often bewildered. And even his own parents, it says, were dumbfounded when they saw their 12-year-old son sitting with the priests in the temple one day. Men who were 30, 40, 50, 60 years older than their son Jesus. And Jesus is confounding them with his wisdom and asking and answering questions. And his parents were astonished, it says. And you might ask, well, so what did Jesus say? The content of his teaching that was so bewildering and astonishing and unsettling to so many people. Well, whole books have been written about that. And you should go buy one and read it. But think about this for a minute. Think about if you went over to Easton and took just kind of a poll. Polled the people walking around there. Hey, sir, ma'am, what would you say was the main thrust of the teaching of Jesus Christ when he was here. What did Jesus teach? And I imagine that what you would hear from people, by and large, is something like this. Well, hmm, I think Jesus taught that people should be good and that people should stop doing bad things and that they should love other people and forgive other people and be nice and help the poor and fight for justice for the oppressed. I think what you'd hear would be along those lines, don't you? But you know... If that was Jesus' primary message, then he wouldn't be any different than the founders of all the other world religions. And yet so many people think that that's what his message was. That he simply reinforced the universally accepted message of the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, be good, love people, behave better, and try to improve your morality. But you know what? When you actually read the scriptures and read the teachings of Jesus, the actual teachings in the Bible, something much more astonishing is revealed. Many Bible scholars have noted that the main thrust of Jesus' teaching was Christocentric. In other words, his main subject was himself. His primary theme all throughout the Gospels seems to be Me, 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 me. And later his apostles in teaching about him would say, him, 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 him. And that didn't sit well with people. Just like it doesn't sit well with some of you. Jesus was forever saying things like, I am the way. I am the door. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm the resurrection. I'm the true vine. I'm the son of God. I'm the son of man. I'm the good shepherd. I have all authority. I am the I am. If you've seen me, you've seen God. I and the Father are one. Come to me. Believe in me. Trust in me. The scriptures are all about me. That was unnerving to people. Well, he did talk a lot about the kingdom of God, didn't he? I mean, that was a primary theme of his message. 
But then he said, the kingdom of God is among you. What he was implying was, and he later stated it outright, I am a king, and I'm here, and therefore the kingdom of God is among you. His theme was himself. And that was astonishing to people. Not only was his message astonishing, but the manner in which he spoke it was astonishing too. People who heard him often remarked, he teaches as one who has authority, not like the scribes. That's different than what they were used to. They were saying his teaching is it's heavier, it's, it's weightier, there's more gravitas to it. And it's more penetrating, it's more insightful, it's, it exposes my heart at a deeper level than I'm comfortable with. And there was something else, something else astonishing about his teaching. Jesus, unlike other teachers, made very little attempt to soften his rhetoric in order to be well-liked. And most people do that. Most pastors do that. I'm sure I do that. Politicians do that. But Jesus didn't. In fact, sometimes it seems as if he purposely said very hard and controversial things in order to weed out and drive away those who simply wanted to be fans out on the fringe. Oh, by the way, he said, if you want to be my disciple, then you'll need to count the cost, leave everything behind, deny yourself, take up your cross, lose your life, fall to the ground and die, be devoted to me above everyone else, hate your father and mother, and also eat my flesh and drink my blood. So who's still in? (laughs) I mean, he said those things. By his words, he gathered people, and then by his words, he thinned out the crowds. On more than one occasion, it says in the scriptures that people walked away scratching their heads, grumbling and, and saying, wow, that's a hard teaching. Who can receive that? Jesus could be astonishingly harsh with his words, especially to religious people. He called them snakes and whitewashed tombs. He told them they were going to hell. But when he was with people who knew they were sinners and knew they were in dire straits apart from God, Jesus would change his tone and become gentle and soft with them. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, weighted down with religion and rules and rituals, and I will give you rest. For my burden is easy and my yoke is light. This was an astonishing man. He's more than you thought. He's more than I thought. The promise of his coming was astonishing. His entrance into our world was full of irony and wonder. And his teaching was startling and unsettling and strangely comforting. And it had the ring of authority and truth to it. I like saying this. Jesus is so not that one-dimensional flannel graph figure you saw in Sunday school growing up. He's just not. He's not one-dimensional. He's multi-dimensional. He's not simple. He's complex. He's more than we thought And we'll be astonished by Jesus for the rest of eternity. We'll be looking at each other going, wow, I didn't know that about him. I've only known him for 800 million years, and I didn't know that. Wow, something new. There's a lot more we could say about the utterly astonishing life of our Savior. His three-year ministry was full of wonder and intrigue. His 
training of his 12 disciples was full of surprise. But let's take a brief glimpse at one more thing today. Think about his astonishing mission, why he came. And of course, we'll never do it justice, not even in eternity. But let's take a moment and think about just one astonishing aspect of Jesus' mission, his purpose in coming to the earth in the form of a human being. Paul, the apostle, wrote this in Romans 5, verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Now, do you have that in your notes there? Would you underline that phrase? Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Verse 17, For if, because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now that's curious, isn't it? Interesting. Paul calls Adam a type, a type of Jesus Christ, a picture, a foreshadowing of Jesus. And then he refers to Jesus as the last Adam. Do you see that? Something very astonishing about Jesus' mission is revealed in this comparison between Adam and Jesus. And when you stop and think about it, there are some very striking parallels between the first Adam and the last Adam, between Jesus and Adam. Think about it. Both Adam and Jesus had a miraculous beginning on this planet, right? God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, it says. And Jesus was supernaturally conceived in the womb of a virgin. Both had miraculous beginnings. Both of them reflected the image of God. Adam, of course, was created by God in his image. Jesus is the image of God throughout all of eternity. Both of them started out completely innocent and sinless. Both were representative heads of the whole human race. Adam and Jesus. Everyone is either in Adam or in Jesus. They are our representative heads. That means that the decisions made by those two men have monumental consequences for all of humanity and ramifications. Think about this. Both Adam and Jesus were givers of life. The first Adam gave life to all of his descendants. In one sense, all of us were in Adam way back then. The first Adam was a giver of life, and the last Adam gives eternal life to those who receive him by believing in his name. And so all of those true believers are technically in Christ and have been since the foundation of the world. Both Adam and Jesus were rulers. Adam was given dominion over the created world. Jesus claimed the title of king, a ruler. Adam, The first Adam was lord over a limited domain. Jesus is lord over all. Here's an interesting one. Both Adam and Jesus were put into a deep sleep that resulted in a beautiful bride being taken from their sides. Think about that for a minute. A wound in the sleeping Adam's side produced a bride named Eve, taken from a rib, taken out of his side. 
and a wound in the dying Jesus' side poured out blood and water, the cleansing agents by which he is purifying for himself his own bride. A glorious bride, holy and without blemish, it says in Ephesians 5, with whom he will be united forever. The bride of Christ, the church, that's us, taken from his side. You know, Genesis begins with a wedding and ends with a wedding. Begins with a marriage, ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb where he is united to his bride, the church. It's astonishing stuff, isn't it? Genesis begins with a garden and ends with a garden. Begins with a tree of life, ends with a tree of life. Begins with paradise, ends with paradise. It's the overarching storyline of the Bible. Both Adam and Jesus faced a monumental test in a garden. Adam in the Garden of Eden, Jesus in Gethsemane. Both experienced being judged by God. Adam was banished from the garden for his disobedience and Jesus was judged on a cross not for his disobedience, but for our disobedience. Many, many parallels, but also some very stark contrasts. Think about that. The first Adam disobeyed God. The last Adam was obedient unto death, it says, even death on a cross. The first Adam failed his test, but the last Adam passed all of his tests and remained faithful to God in everything. First Adam sinned and the image of God in him that he was created with became distorted, it became marred, but the last Adam bears the unfailing image of God for all of eternity. The sin of the first Adam brought a curse on mankind, didn't it? And on all of creation. But the obedience of the last Adam set into motion the great reversal, the great undoing of all of the effects of the sin of the first Adam. And the promise of the restoration of all things. All things. Adam's sin brought condemnation, enslavement, and death. But Jesus' obedience brings justification and liberation and eternal life. The first Adam turned a garden into a grave and the last Adam made a grave into a garden. Truly astonishing, wouldn't you say? This Jesus who appeared on earth as the last Adam, humanity's second representative. And he began the work of undoing and reversing all the death and devastation caused by the first Adam. And he accomplished it in a truly astonishing way. I was talking about this with a young lady in our church this week who came to me and said, Pastor Steve, I want to know Jesus better. And so we sat down and had a conversation and we started to talk about Jesus and who he was and his birth and his upbringing and his life. And then we got to that part of his life where he suffered. And as I talked about that, I could see her growing a little bit more uncomfortable and shifting in her seat a little bit. Because I talked about the unjust treatment that Jesus received. Betrayed by a friend, abandoned in his time of need by his disciples, how the crowds turned on him. I continued talking about his arrest in the garden and then how the trials that he went through all that night were all rigged. Monkey trials rigged against him. Talked about how even though he was the only truly innocent man who ever lived, he ended up being flogged and literally beaten to a pulp. And as I described the the crown of thorns being mashed onto his head and the blood trickling down his face and the purple robe that they put on him in mockery and then ripped off of his bloodied back, as I described all that, I could see her wince 
and cringe. And I was too. And I described in graphic detail just how badly Jesus was brutalized. And then the horror of being crucified on a cross and becoming sin. Purity, absolute purity, becoming sin. So that as Martin Luther said, he became the most despicable human being in the history of the world in that moment. And then I looked at this young lady and I said, but you need to know something. You need to know that this was all part of a plan. According to the scriptures, it says. And when this was happening to the son, the father was not up in heaven wringing his hands saying, no, 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 things are out of control. I got to go to a, a different planet. No, no, this was all part of the plan. A beautiful, astonishing, bewildering, brilliant plan mapped out from before the foundations of the world and executed beautifully and perfectly by Jesus Christ. A redemptive plan. She was astonished, and I am, and you should be too. This is Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the true and better Adam, the true and better Israel, achieving on an old rugged cross the undoing of everything that Adam forfeited in the garden. Truly astonishing. I want us to listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah, writing 700 years before Jesus ever appeared on the scene. But speaking of him, Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. Amen. He shall be exalted. Verse 14, As many as were, what? Astonished at you. Another feature of the astonishment of Jesus Christ, this time in his death as he was hanging on the cross. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. When he was hanging on the cross, he didn't even hardly look human. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And there it is. The verbiage, the language of cleansing of all nations, what Israel had failed to do in being a light to the nations, Jesus accomplished through his death. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. Many of you know this passage. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. That's how bad he looked on the cross. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed For our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, those bloody stripes on his back, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The sacrificial mission of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, is truly astonishing. Is it not? that God would take our sins and lay them on his own son and punish his own son in our place. That's the gospel. That's gospel truth. But let me say this as I finish. As we read earlier, all of humanity, every single individual on the globe, every single individual in this room is either in Adam or in Christ. Did you know that? That's the most important distinction in all of humanity. It's not black and white. 
It's not even male and female or rich and poor. It's in Adam or in Christ. Everybody has one of those two as their representative on their behalf. In this room, many of us are in Christ, aren't we? By virtue of what? How good we've been? By virtue of the death of Jesus on the cross, bearing our sins his resurrection, giving us eternal life, and our total, complete reliance upon that to make us acceptable to God. But some people, some of you perhaps, are no doubt still in Adam. That transfer of headship hasn't happened yet for you. You see, until a person places 100% of their trust and faith in Jesus Christ... Until that happens, the first Adam is still your head. The first Adam is still your representative. And all of his sin and disobedience has been imputed to you. And as a result, you're still under the curse and condemnation of the first Adam. But it doesn't have to be that way. And it doesn't have to end that way. The second Adam came. That first Christmas He grew up, he lived that perfect life that God demands, but that you could never live in a million years. He lived it perfectly. And then he died the death that you and I deserve because of Adam's sin imputed to us and because of our own long list of sins that we've accumulated in our lives. He died the death we deserve. Then he rose from the grave and now he's able and willing to grant forgiveness, cleansing, pardon, and eternal life, and give his righteousness to all who simply believe. But listen, don't for a moment think, if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, but I I think I could be good enough for God. I, I think I could, I think I could, like, try harder and be a better person. And a lot of people think this way. In fact, the majority of people on this planet think that they can be good enough to earn acceptance with God and favor with God. That's how they think. And so they set about trying to be better people, even getting religion, some of them, and going to church and paying tithes and serving and helping old ladies across the street and serving the poor and and trying to do good things all in hopes that someday God will see all of that and he'll weigh out their good deeds versus their bad deeds and hopefully the balance will be in their favor and God will say, come on in. That's what most people think. Did you know that? That's what some of you think. You think that God grants his acceptance and approval based on your performance. And so you're on that performance treadmill trying hard, working hard, trying to cut out your bad habits and develop more good ones. And it's exhausting. And you'll never, you'll never meet the standard. I was talking with a guy a couple of weeks ago who said to me, I, I, think, I think I could be good enough for God. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna, I got out my little scale. I drew my little scale on the whiteboard like I like to do, the scale of goodness. I put God at the top and the devil down at the bottom. 
This is the scale of goodness of all of humanity. And I say, let's put Billy Graham on there somewhere. And we did. We marked Billy Graham up here and Mother Teresa. And where would you put your mom? You know, he puts his mom on there. Now put yourself. Where do you put yourself on this scale of goodness? Well, I'm not as bad as Satan or Hitler or Saddam Hussein down here at the bottom, but I'm not as good as God, so, but I'm not as good as Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. So I'm right about here. Okay, now take a look at that. Do you see there's a gap? Sure, you're better than some people and worse than others. That's the case with all of us. But all of us fall short of the glory of God. The standard is too high. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, Be ye therefore perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect, and there ain't none perfect. None. None. So this incessant working and trying to be religious enough to please God and do good things, it's exhausting. And then in the end, it doesn't fly. God won't accept it. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us, the Bible says. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If it was by our good efforts and our trying and all that, then people could walk around saying, I think I did it. I think I'm in. I think I passed muster. It's not. We contribute really nothing to our salvation. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. We have just to receive it by faith and put 100% of our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The best Christmas gift you could give the Lord Jesus for his birthday this Christmas season is to give him your whole life, because he deserves it. He's worthy of it. He created you, and he redeemed you through his sacrificial death on the cross. He rose from the grave. He's alive today. He's transforming people's lives all around the globe, and he's listening for that desperate heart cry from you. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I finish with some of the most remarkable, astonishing words that Jesus ever spoke. He looked at a group of people one day and he said this, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. You say, I I have a checkered past and a, 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 you know, dubious present. (laughs) Come, whoever comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. You say, well, other people have despised me and rejected me. He knows what that's like. He's been there. We read about that. He has a special place in his heart for people who are in that situation. Come to him. Come. He said, come unto me. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to him for salvation today. If if you never have, come to him today. In a moment, we're going to partake of the Lord's table together. The elements that represent the crushed body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus ordained, we're going to observe that together and partake of those things. You know, most of you are believers here in this room. You, You are believers. You are in Christ. That transfer has happened through Jesus' sacrifice and your faith in that. And I just want to encourage you this Christmas season to just be astonished at Jesus all over again. 
And today, before you as a believer come and partake of the Lord's table, would you come with a clear conscience and a clean heart? And so maybe you're holding on to something in your life that's not pleasing to the Lord. You're clinging to it. And Jesus is calling you to let it go. It's not worth it. It pales in comparison with the joy that's in Jesus Christ. Maybe there's a sin, a pattern of sinning, a relationship issue, something that has usurped his place in your heart. I I urge you, before you come and partake, confess that to the Lord. And we'll have some prayer partners up here. You can come and confess to them as well. It's the Lord's table. It's for believers. If you're not yet a believer here today, I would urge you with all my heart, repent and believe the gospel and be saved. Trust in Jesus Christ. He did everything that's necessary for you to be born again and be a child of God. And if that's you today, you can partake once you have believed And I just sense there are some of you who need to come to one of these prayer partners and just confess Jesus Christ as Lord to them. Just go up to them and say, I just need to confess Jesus Christ is my Savior and Lord. He died on the cross for me. I believe that. He paid for my sins. He rose from the grave. I've accepted him. I've believed in him. and He's my Savior and Lord. And let them say a word to you. And then as a new believer, partake of the body and blood of Christ in a meaningful way for the first time. Wouldn't that be cool? So if you're one of those couples, one of those pairs who's going to be serving just a few moments, you can go get ready for that. And while they're doing that, let me pray for us. Our Father, now we come to this time that Jesus ordained on that night when he took bread with his disciples and when he took the cup and he changed the whole meaning of it from the Passover to the new covenant And Lord, now we want to prepare our hearts to partake. And as we do, I pray you'd meet us in a special way, that we would sense Jesus in a special way. Lord, if there are believers here in this room right now who are clinging to sin, who are embracing false gods in their hearts, who are engaged in secret sins or religious sins or who are proud and arrogant, Lord, would you humble them in this moment that they might confess and come clean and release and be cleansed so that they can partake with a clear conscience and a clean heart. And if there are any in the room who are still in Adam and not yet in Christ, Lord, but they're coming to you right now, please receive them on the basis of the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Cause them to be born again May they come and confess Jesus as their Savior and Lord to one of the prayer partners here and then partake with joy in this commemoration of the great sacrifice. Do your work among us as we obey Jesus' command, I pray in his precious name. Amen. Amen.